You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. We're going to continue on in this series, Genesis Foundations for an Unsteady World. And so today I was going to wrap it up, but I'm going to postpone that wrap up and do another week because uh, I'm only in Genesis 41 and I'm leaving nine chapters hanging. So after today, there will be one more message on Genesis. And everybody who's in favor of that said aye. We won't even ask for nays. All right. So carried so ordered. So anyway, why don't everybody stand for the reading of the word today? And we're going to read from Genesis chapter 41, verses 1 through 13. We're picking up uh, the story of Joseph which covers Genesis 37 through chapter 50. So let's read. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile. When out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the river front. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of the grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. Now, Lord, I pray that as the word is taught, that the Holy Spirit will not only uh, touch our hearts, but touch our minds. Help us, God, to be able to understand, comprehend, and more importantly, God, to absorb the word of God into our life so that our actions, our deeds, our values are reflective of what you want for us in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 The Lord bless you. You can be seated. As we look at these scriptures, I always like to give some insight, some interesting facts. Some of them are sometimes tied directly to the message, sometimes they're not, but today definitely is. Some things I'm going to give you an insight. I also uh, am, uh, I love going through the timelines because timelines tell us so much. And the reason I like to do these two elements, not only the background timeline is, There's a misconception in Christianity, and some of you may actually hold this misconception, and it's this, that somehow biblical history is different than world history as we know it. Sometimes people don't think that they are that they are integrated. We, we learn a biblical history, then we go to our universities, our schools, and we learn world history, and we never hear anything about the biblical history. So in our brains, we can create some types of categories like, well, I know there's a biblical history, and I just believe it. And that, that's fine, but I don't, wanna, I don't feel like world history, as it is taught, is a threat. I will acknowledge that much of what they teach may edit out But our biblical history is not in conflict with world history. So today, as I go into the message, I want to say that so that you can see where uh, this story falls. Because this, uh, the story of Joseph, supposedly, and by the way, I do believe it happened, okay? 
but I'm just taking a neutral position here for a second, okay? Supposedly played out on a world stage. Well, shouldn't we know who those world players were? Shouldn't there be some type of confirmation? I'm not saying we're going to find Joseph's name, but if he became second in command and did what he did, shouldn't there be some evidence of this in world history? Because this is significant. So my answer is yes, world history does confirm some elements of the story enough to know that this really did happen. So let me lay out this timeline because we're talking about Genesis 41. I had this up last week. Timelines are important. For this particular reason, when you want to find the truth, let's go, let's go into the, uh, the law enforcement arena, okay? One of the first things they try to do is establish a timeline. Who was where? What were they doing? When did they arrive? When did they depart? Where did they go? The, the first thing in being able to solve any type of case is establishing a timeline of who and where were they at what time. And that tells you so much of what was possible and what was not possible. And it's the same way here. I want to give you a timeline. So I did speak on Genesis 12. That's the story of where Abraham got his promise that God would make his descendants as numerous as the stars. That was around 2058 B.C. Then came his son Isaac in, in Genesis 26. I shared that. He's in the land of the Philistines. And while he does well, the promise is associated with uh, uh, Abraham, the descendants. It's not playing out yet. In fact, he's not even in the right land at, the, at that particular time. But that's around 100 years later, 1958 B.C. Then comes uh, Jacob, and I shared on that chapter in Genesis 32, where he has an, a wrestling match with the angel. That was around 1896. So now we're in Genesis 41. And this is about 1852 B.C. This is when he gets promoted from prison to second in command of Egypt. So we're now roughly 200 years after Abraham has gotten his promise. Why do I say that? We need to adjust our thinking on how God delivers his promises. We think if he doesn't do it by next week, then it's not going to happen. And then we go, well, certainly if it doesn't happen in my lifetime, then God must not be going to do it. I got news for you. God's promises go beyond your first and your last breath. And we have to understand how God's promises work. And so let me give you a little more insight. What was this world that Joseph was stepping into when he got put in second in command? Like, who's he working for? What is this like? What is his responsibility? What do we know from world history that could contextualize his life? Well, let me give this to you. So we suspect that Joseph was taken to Egypt around 1865 B.C. This is when he got sold. Joseph was promoted to second in command around 1852. So he was uh, in prison 13 years. He went there as a 17-year-old. He's 13 years. He did a short stint in Potiphar's house, remember, and then was returned. And he's now 30. And he was promoted under the Pharaoh, Sesostris III. Now, I know some of you don't know Egyptian history, so how about I give you a little bit of that? Okay. If you do a little, how many have ever heard of the Middle Dynasty and things like that in Egypt? This is the Middle Dynasty, okay? His father, Sesostris II, okay, was, was the previous pharaoh. Now, I've got to tell you about these guys because you read the story of, of what Joseph did, and you're thinking, so this guy was able to convince the world power that he needed to adjust his economic plan. Let me give you the background. Sesostros II, his father, is the one who took the marshlands that were around the Nile and created these dikes and these canals so that the land could grow these crops. So they were doing okay, but his father recognized there was a bumper crop out there that was not being uh, capitalized on, so he came up with this massive uh, program, and he was able to create dikes and canals and turn a lot of the land around the Nile into farmable land. Does anybody see where this is going? Since Joseph said, you have these bumper crops and you better start. Don't you love it when God already sees what's coming and gives people ideas? So Sesostros comes along, the third, 
And he's starting to use all the resources. He's the guy who was creating urbanization, creating cities. He was reviving the trades because the cities were being built. So he was taking the surplus and using it for development of the urban centers. Then comes Joseph and says basically this, you don't want to do that anymore. You got a famine breathing down your neck and you got seven years to change the course of your spending program. And there's nothing wrong with your spending program, but in seven years, you're going to have a famine, and these building projects are going to be a headache to you. So you better start putting that grain away in anticipation. Now, to show you the power of God working through a man, he got the world leader to redeploy his resources in a completely different direction than what he was doing. Now, if you don't think that's a miracle, let me send you to Congress and see if you can get them to redirect something. Okay. Let's, just, let's just put it in context here, okay? So you can understand the kind of influence God must have given Joseph to where that the Pharaoh said, okay, we're going we're gonna to put a lot of these urban projects on ice. We're not going to be selling that grain. We're going to save that in anticipation of the dream that I had and the interpretation that Joseph. So you can see the power that God gave Joseph was incredible. Here's the other thing we know about Sassassi. Sesostris III, just an interesting note. The average Egyptian was five foot four. That was the average height of a male back then. Sesostris was six foot six. So it wasn't hard to figure out where Pharaoh was. You know, not only by his appearance and how he dressed, but he was also the guy that was 12 inches taller than everybody in the room. It was real easy to figure out Sesostris. He was also a great military mind, and I don't want to get into any more than that, but he was a great leader he propelled Egypt into his him and his father propelled Egypt into some of the greatest days that they ever had and most people don't know that Joseph was his number two isn't that awesome God always has his people in places that we sometimes just go I didn't know that well so we're going to look at so by the way let me just give you a little bit of I, I shared a little bit of this last week Joseph died around 1772 BC and Amenahet was the uh, Pharaoh so Joseph survived his uh, position when the then that Pharaoh who appointed him died and another one came to power Joseph survived that just goes to tell you this people who are of stellar character and stellar giftings always find a place People will want to keep you around if you do excellence in your job. There might be changes where you work, but if you do really well, they're going to figure out how to keep you. All right. Last thing is this. By the time Joseph, this, uh, how many have ever seen the Great Pyramid, the Giza, the biggest one? So it's the one they always highlight in photos. And how many have ever seen the Sphinx? Oh, come on. Some of you have seen the Sphinx. Come on. All right, so little history. The, the Pyramid of Giza is around 650 years old by the time Joseph comes to power, and the Sphinx is around 700 years old. And Joseph says he was put in charge of all the land and all the people. So this is really ironic. Joseph would have been responsible for managing these landmarks. When was the last time you ever looked at the iconic things of Egypt that are thousands of years old and thought, some of the forefathers of my faith used to manage this. They didn't, they didn't necessarily agree what it was attributed to, but it was part of their portfolio to do the management because they managed the resources and they managed the people. Wow. So the next time you look at that in a photo, you just might take that to your, take it in your head, go, wow, I never knew that the forefathers of my faith helped manage that for Egypt at the particular time. So let's begin to get into the message of Genesis 41 and look at now this world that Joseph is going into. And it happens rather suddenly. So let's begin. Number one, read it out loud. God is always working in arenas that we can't see. It says in verse 1, when two full years had passed, so Joseph has been accused of sexual assault. So even though it was never proven, in his world, you're guilty, you're back in prison. And he's sitting there for two years. It would be easy for him to think, well, so much for uh, getting ahead here in in, uh, Egypt. The judicial system is rigged. Guys like me don't get fair trials. In fact, guys like me don't get trials. 
Once somebody of a certain magnitude of authority makes an accusation against you, you are, you are guilty and you are relinquished to the jail. No hearing. Just guilty. It would be easy for Joseph to come to the mindset, my life is over and my life is going to go nowhere and nobody cares. But I want you to see, two years later, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile. What that tells us is this. God's activity is not confined to where you are. God's activity goes outside of your arena. God's activity is working in the lives of people that you don't even know. He's working on your behalf in other rooms with other people, and you're sitting there because you don't see God's activity in front of you. You go, then God must not be doing anything. God doesn't always run everything by your eyes. He doesn't always do that. The activity of God goes beyond. And so Joseph is in a prison. He probably thinks his life is over. And God is, is in the highest office of the land preparing and working in Pharaoh's heart. Here is, let me give you some instruction this morning on how to pray effectively. How many would like to know that? This is not a gimmick, but it's, it's a real real tangible way that sometimes we need to look in the scripture and see that it tells us this but we fall into some habits and it's and, and they're not necessarily always good our habits are good intention but they're not always done well so here's the habit that we typically might fall into in prayer we have problems on a prayer list and we pray the problem and we pray the solution as if God is totally clueless about what to do with all that power he has. So we'll say things like this, God, heal. Heal. God, provide. Nothing, listen, there's nothing wrong with that. But let me, let, me, let me, sometimes we need to back it up and go, we're praying as if God is not even doing anything. Jesus said this in John. He said, my father is always at work. So I want you to turn your person on your left and right and just say, remember, God is always at work. Tell them that. Remember, God is always at work. Tell them. Okay. So hear me. Catch this. So if I don't pray, is God, this is a quiz now. Okay. You've had group discussion. Quiz. If I don't pray, is God still working? Yeah, because it says he's always at work. So what's the element of my prayer then? So sometimes we pray as if God's not working and we're praying to get God to work. And I, I can imagine God going, you know I'm working. And I was working before you prayed. And now you're praying, telling me to work when I was already doing that. So how do I answer a prayer when I was already doing what you're asking me to do? So what do we pray for? It's this, show me what you're doing so I know what I need to do. You ever get me? Okay. Jesus said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Whose will? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Show me what you're doing. The problem I'm having right now is I don't know what you're doing, therefore I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So God, you're working in my son who's on drugs. I don't see it. Can you show me what you're doing so that I know what I'm supposed to do for him or not do? God, my daughter's got a drinking problem. I don't know what to do. Can you show me what to do so that I know how to respond to her? See, sometimes we look at the drug addict or the drunk or something, and we go, God, you're not doing anything. Yes, he is. His father, the father's always at work. It's just you don't see it. And so the prayer is, show me what you're doing. A friend of mine posted uh, this past week on Facebook, great story. I wasn't looking for this story, but when she posted, it was just awesome because she had shared how praying this has changed her whole identity of, of approaching life. She says, I go into the day going, God, you're working out there today, and I'm going to meet a lot of people. What I don't know is what you're doing in them. So would you show me your activity today? Just show me. And so this particular day, she was getting on a flight. She got on the flight, took her seat. It was going to be a full flight, so she knew somebody was sitting with her. 
in comes a lady in that long line as they're lining, you know, people get in the line, and it's, she can tell by the placement of the bag and the overhead bin where she's getting ready to uh, put her stuff that this is the lady who's going to be sitting with her, and the bag won't fit. And of course, how many have ever stood behind the person who was convinced that just needed a bigger shove? And you sat there, and in your brain you went, there is no way that bag is ever going to fit in that overhead bin. You know, I mean, come on, can I get a witness? So it was, it was one of those bags. Finally, the lady is frustrated. She recognizes she's holding everybody up. There's no progress. She takes the bag down, opens it up, and just starts pulling clothes out and setting it on her seat. She's about to break down. She's just frustrated. She pulls, gets enough clothes out of the bag, zips it up, pushes it in, sits on the clothes in her seat. And my friend sitting next to her goes, is thinking, well, this is going to be a fun flight, <laughs> sitting next to somebody like that. And so she just, you know, tried to be kind and say, so yeah, it's always frustrating when you think the overhead bins are a certain size. And then you get on the plane, and then you find out they're not, and the bag that you've packed won't fit. It's always frustrating. Yes, it is very frustrating. And she said, uh, where are you flying to? Where, where's, your, where's your final destination? And the lady was just trying to keep a grip. Told her, said, I'm headed to such. And she said, oh, that's great. You know, must be what? Uh, family get-together, vacation, whatever. No, it's my f husband's funeral. Hey, God, just show me your activity as I go into my day. That's what she'd been praying. And nobody in that whole stream of people ever put two and two together. But the person who prayed, show me what you're doing in people's lives today so that I know what my response needs to be. How many know that will change your response very quickly? And it did. She had an hour and a half with her on the flight to talk to her, pray for her. She got off the plane with her. She went with her to the bags, helped her pull her bags, helped her through the airport, walked her out to the curb. Lady Express said this, nobody has shown me this much kindness all day. Well, probably because people didn't know, let's be honest. But on the other part is this, that's why you say, God, would you show me what you're doing in the lives of people today? Help me to be aware. You're, he's working in everybody you speak with. The only problem you and I have is, is we don't know what God's doing. So that's why we ask. You don't have, I tell God, you don't have to tell me every. How many have ever said, please don't tell me everything? <laughs> you know, it's, it's always, tell me enough so that I know what to do. God, you don't have to spill the beans on somebody's life. You don't have to just, you know, just let it all. I don't have to, just, just tell me enough so that I know how to respond, how to engage, how to work with them, how to talk to them, how to maybe just be a friend. God is always at work in arenas that we can't see. We need to say, here's my day. Help me to see your activity so I can cooperate. And everybody said amen. 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 All right, let's go to number two. Everybody read this one out loud with me. Number two, divine appointments come from the most unlikely people. So here he is, stuck in a prison under a false accusation that has a severe penalty. By the way, I probably ought to mention this. I know that he was sent back to prison, but under Egyptian law, Joseph was to be executed with no trial. Just the word of an official's wife was enough to have him executed. And so an act of mercy was letting him live, which is what Potiphar did, which tells you that he probably wasn't 100% sure that the accusation coming from his wife was true. Because if it was true, Potiphar is the one who could have pronounced sentence on him to be executed. The fact that he didn't says that there might have been some hesitation. And so an act of mercy was even letting Joseph live. And I can imagine Joseph going, wow, what a life I'm going to have now. Mercy is jail for the rest of my life. But it says, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. So Pharaoh 
has this dream. Nobody can answer it. And the cupbearer, now here's a unique guy. I'm pretty sure he wasn't a follower of God. Okay, I'm pretty sure. And what's a, what's a cupbearer's job? A cup, his job was this, was not only to help provide the drink for Pharaoh, but it was his job to always drink it first in front of Pharaoh to make sure that Pharaoh wasn't being poisoned. How many know you probably can't get a life insurance policy for that kind of job? Yeah, his, so literally the cupbearer lives on the edge of eternity every day. Literally, every day he's on the doorstep of eternity. Every time he takes a drink, he's, he's on the doorstep of eternity going, well, nothing happened. I guess it's safe to drink, sir. God uses that type of person to be Joseph's break. Sometimes as followers of Christ, we go, Shouldn't, couldn't God have found somebody with a better spiritual resume? I mean, God uses all kinds of people. He doesn't always use people who hold our values. He doesn't always hold people or use people who have our, our perspective on life. God can use anybody to impact and help us in our life. If, when, if, I'm, if I'm ever in a hospital, I just want the best surgeon. We'll talk about his faith later. Come on. But I just want the best surgeon. I don't, I don't, you know, you're not going to lay there, excuse me, can I see your church membership card? That's irrelevant, man. This person knows the job and is one of the best, let them do it. And so God uses people many times outside of our faith to bring correction to those of us in the faith. I've said this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because it had such a huge impact on my life as a kid. I was in fifth grade. And my dad, where they were pastoring, uh, was on the precipice of having to totally relocate the church literally across the town, all the way to the other side of town. They were a little church. I call it a postage stamp church in a neighborhood. You know how you, the church takes up one block in a neighborhood? It was a neighborhood church. And they had grown, and they had bought a few houses, so they'd been able to expand the parking lot to accommodate multiple services. But it just came to the point that they were going to have to relocate. And so with, with the original site, that, that little block of where the church was in the parking, they had two acres total. So they thought, well, faith is going and shopping and looking for five acres. If you go from two acres to five acres, that sounds like faith, right? And so they went out and started this shopping process. And finally, they found a guy on the edge of town uh, selling 18 acres, and he agreed to sell them five. And the story, the learning lesson for me is we were sitting at the dinner table one night and we heard the door knock and my dad got up and uh, I noticed my dad said a few words, went outside and the only time I ever heard my dad yell was at me. And I noticed his voice, he wasn't saying inappropriate, but I noticed the volume of his voice was up even though the front door was shut and I was like, ooh, this is getting interesting. Wonder what's going on out there, who is it, you know? And of course mom is like, kids just eat, kids just eat, kids just eat. Finally, my dad comes in, he sits down, and there's that stare that a, a husband and wife have. The look on my mom was like, like what? And my dad's look was, later, don't ask. And uh, played out, what happened was this. That was the guy that they had bought the five acres from. He had come back, and he gave my dad the check back, and he said, I've come to the conclusion, preacher, I'm not going to sell you five acres. You buy all 18, or you don't get any of it. And the conversation went back and forth. My dad says, we don't have that kind of money. We just need five. What are we going to do with eight, 18 acres? All we're going to do is mow grass. We don't need 18 acres. We just need five. That's two and a half times what we are using right now. And the guy says, well, I just don't want to get into this parcel and this and dividing it up and all, zoning. You know, look, you, you buy it all or you don't get nothing. And dad says, we don't, have, we don't have that kind of money. And the guy kind of made a little snide remark, but he, I think he was being truthful. He just said, well, you're a preacher. You should have that kind of faith. And so it was left hanging. So, you know, little church, so they had to go back and have a business meeting, the case, you know, get explained to the congregation, and they had to pray about it, because that was like 18 acres way over their heads. And they came back together, and they agreed, let's do this. Let's figure out a way. Let's make a commitment. We're going to buy 18 acres, and they did. Why is that such a huge impact on me? Because as I grew, that's the church that I ended up pastoring later on in my life. 
And when I left in 2010, all 18 acres was fully developed. Just to handle the crowd on a Sunday required six acres of parking lot. God used a man who wasn't even a follower of him to tell the church, your vision's too small. You guys aren't thinking big enough. You think you need five acres just for whatever you plan on doing, your building, your parking, you know, five acres is all you need. And God was saying, good grief, that's not even enough for the parking that I have in store for you. God used somebody outside the faith get this, to correct the entire church leadership. Well, we all know God's not supposed to do that. I mean, come on, God, bring in somebody with a high-caliber spiritual resume who can consult the church from a spiritual standpoint, and God says, nah, I'm going to use somebody outside the faith to bring correction on you because your vision's too small. Divine appointments come from the most unlikely people. And that's why I say we need to be asking God, show me what you're doing, and we just might be surprised who he's using. And everybody said amen. amen. Number three, read it out loud. Our spiritual identity must be greater than our cultural identity. So I'm going to read a passage here. It might surprise you a little bit. It says, so Pharaoh sent for Joseph and was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. You read that verse and you just go, well, yeah, I mean, the guy's in prison. He stinks. His clothes are horrible. His hair is probably pathetic. Who knows what shape his beard is in? And if he's going to go stand in front of Pharaoh, yeah, you look presentable. And that's our Americanism kicking in. What actually happened was this. If you know, the Hebrews took pride, the Jewish people took pride in growing their beards. Okay? That was an element of pride, of identification. If you've seen any of the Egyptian uh, hieroglyphics and things that they painted on the walls, you notice that they were just the opposite. They believed in a completely shaved head, no facial hair. If it was some kind of a special ceremony, they would put on something fake. But essentially, they, especially at Pharaoh's letter, level, you were, he was a god, so you could have no hair on your entire body. You had to be totally shaven, completely. I never knew I was Egyptian. Some of you are having to take a moment to think about this as you look at me, and all I can say is look at my eyes and look just six inches north. You're good. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> that was just to see if you were listening, and I can tell you are. That's good. So in essence was this. He forfeited his appearance as a Hebrew to take on the appearance of an Egyptian so he could come into the court. Now some of you are going, man, that ain't right. He should have drawn the line and said, uh-uh, uh-uh, you don't do that. Hold on a minute. Isn't that what our missionaries do? Hello? This is like where you give a response. Missionaries go into the nations, and they look at how the people dress. And the idea is not to be this stand-out American. But they go, look, we, if we're going to reach these people, we have to acclimate. So... We're going to live in the houses they live in. We're going to dress the way they dress. We're going to alter our physical appearance at times. If they wear head coverings, we're wearing head coverings. If the women wear a head covering, my wife is going to wear a head covering. If they take off their shoes when they go into a house, we're going to take our shoes off. It's all part of the acclimation process so that you can reach people. So that you can't look at Joseph as a sellout. Okay, this is what it was going to take to bring God into the highest uh, office of the world which was a pharaoh and then he goes on down in genesis chapter 41 verse 45 pharaoh gave joseph the name uh zephineth Pania, and gave him a, a, a seneth daughter of potiphera priest of on to be his wife changed his name 
and you think, well, man, that ain't right. He's, okay, he, I understand he's got to change his appearance, but this ain't right. He, ought, he should have drawn a line. Hang on a minute. If you go into the book of Daniel, you'll also see that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all had their names changed by Nebuchadnezzar. In their particular time of the world, it was a way of showing that who was in charge of you. Your boss could change your name. It was a way of identifying that who had the authority. But here's the interesting thing is, with all that, Joseph never forgot who he was. So let's look at, I'm kind of getting ahead of the story, but let's look at the story of Joseph and his brothers show up. And remember, his brothers didn't recognize him? Well, it's no wonder. They had never seen Joseph totally shaven. And by this time, he is in Pharaoh's household, and I'm just, you would know that Pharaoh, they would often use makeup. Okay, you also see that in some of the, the artwork that the pharaohs many times would wear some forms of makeup to, I, to try to give themselves a godlike appearance. Okay, that was just part of the deal. So he would have had, so when his brother saw him, there's absolutely no way they would have ever figured out that was Joseph. Number one, they had never seen Joseph in that state, and his appearance had been so altered. Okay, plus they have the preconceived notion that he's already dead. So there's just no reason that they would ever think that that was Joseph. And so this tells us that Joseph presented himself as Zephanada. He didn't say, I'm Joseph, right away. He presented himself by his Egyptian name. And his brothers had no idea it was him. But then, when Joseph was sure that their character was sincere and that their integrity was, it was, was what it needed to be for his revelation, he then said, look at me, I'm Joseph, your brother. Who you sold into slavery. Joseph never forgot who he was. And when he really wanted to tell somebody who he was, he said, Joseph. With all the trappings and the things that came along with that household of Pharaoh and the authority, Joseph, listen to me, Joseph still knew he was Joseph. Later on, in Genesis chapter 50, you'll read that Joseph died. He actually died before many of his brothers. Even though Joseph was one of the younger brothers, he was one of the first of the brothers to die. We don't know why. We don't know what happened. But it just said he called his brothers and he was explaining to them the blessings. And one of the things that he said there was this. Uh, and I'm translating this just for the, for, for the brevity of time. He basically said this. Prepare my body in such a way because I don't want to stay here in Egypt. Prepare these bones to be taken to Canaan, the promised land, when we inherit the land. I want my bones to go to, to the promised land, and I want to be buried there. Joseph never forgot he was Joseph. He said, you will not leave me buried with the Egyptians because I'm not an Egyptian. And when we come into our land, I want to be buried with my people. And I want to be buried on the land that God promised us. Joseph never forgot who he was. And when you read in Exodus, the Exodus... Slow down. You'll see in the story that as they left Egypt, there is a verse that says they took Joseph's bones. Wow, can you imagine two to three million people leaving Egypt and somebody said, hold it. Has anybody got Joseph's bones? I mean, I know we got food, I know we got all this, but you got the kids and Joseph's bones. Okay, we're ready to go. Yeah. Joseph never forgot who he was. So I say this for us in our culture. We use a lot of titles. We call people a doctor, professor. We call them this, we call them that. We call them chief. We call them attorney. We call them mayor. We call them senator. We call them house rep. We call them president, vice president. We call them chairman. We, use, we have so many titles that we use. And if you're not careful, you will lose your identity in your title. I'm okay with titles until you lose who you are. When you lose who God's called you to be. I may be a lot of things in life. To some of you, I'm a pastor. To others, I'm a teacher. To, the, to others, I'm a, I'm a coach. To this. To... But the number one thing that I am is this. I'm a child of God. 
And the titles can come and go all they want in life, but the bottom line is I'm a child of God and I will never lose that identity. Don't let the trappings of life cause you to lose the identity that really, truly matters to you. And everybody said amen. amen. Number four is this. Read it out loud. The gifts of the Spirit open up new dimensions of fruitfulness. I know that there's not that necessary phrasing of the gifts of the Spirit, but you see the, the giftings happening. In verse 12, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. So a cupbearer sees the giftings of the Holy Spirit. This is not a Bible study, man. He's sitting in prison. The gifts of the Spirit are happening in prison. At least have the decency to have a Bible study. But does that show you that God says, will you just ask what I'm doing and how I'm doing it and be there? It's not always the holy moment that you think it's going to be. It doesn't get any more unholier than on death row in a prison, which is what that was. And the gifts of the Spirit are flowing and a dream is being interpreted. Look at this. Then you come to chapter 41, verses 38 through 40. Pharaoh is impressed. Now get this. Pharaoh thinks he's a god. And what happens? So Pharaoh asked them, meaning his court, speaking to them about Joseph. Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom the Spirit of God? Does everybody see the word God? Do you see it's capitalized? Notice it's not a little g. So that tells us when Joseph was inquired, who's your God? He said, well, my God's name is God. See, in Pharaoh's mindset in Egyptian culture was there were just a bunch of gods. That, so he was wanting to know the name of his God, a, a God. And Joseph says he's not a God, he's the God. And how crazy is this? Pharaoh honored. That doesn't say that he accepted it, but he honors it. And he even uses the same phraseology that would have originated with Joseph. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you. Do you see that? He doesn't say since a God has made all this known. He says since God. Joseph says the name of my God is God. And Pharaoh says, all I know is, sounds good to me, let's roll with it. Since God has made all this known to you, there is one, there is no one discerning, so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Wow. The gifts of the Spirit opened up new dimensions. Can I tell you, I think God's people ought to be the solutions that Main Street has the problems, I think God's people should be the solutions to the problems that our society has. I think, if I look in society, yeah, I think that our society could use a gift of wisdom right now. Our society could use the gift of knowledge. Our, our society could use the gift of discernment. We could use the gift of leadership. We could use the gift of administration. We could use, I mean, you can just list them. You're like, man, the gifts need to be flowing on Main Street, man. The gifts need to be flowing where you work. And here's the thing. Those things open doors and bring more opportunity to us to have impact. It's tough to be a witness if you can't have impact. But you just got to know when God gives you impact what it's for. Stop thinking that every break in life is designed to make you famous. I don't know what it is. Americans. Man, I got a break. I'm going to be famous. I'm going to make a lot of money. Wow. What a dream. As a follower of Christ, it's, I'm amazed that God's going to give me the platform. Do you know what I'll be able to do for him? Do you know what I can do from that platform for God compared to what I'm doing today? This is incredible. The things that I'll be able to, to touch, to speak to, to address. Stop looking for fame. And start looking, start looking for his activity. 
I thought you'd say amen at least. All right, number five, read it out loud. God's redemptive power heals and transforms our heart and mind. Listen to me. This is important. Just because you're successful doesn't mean you can't be hurt. We sometimes equate, if I'm successful, that means I'm not as vulnerable. I'll say just the opposite. Joseph had a lot of baggage. His brothers sold him into slavery. The majority wanted to kill him. One brother stood up and literally stopped the others, but the majority wanted to kill him. And the, listen, the compromise was to sell him into slavery for life. I guess that's love. And then he works his way out, and he gets accused of sexual assault. And because of who the accusation originated from, there's no hearing. He's just convicted and back to prison. And we know that he's literally on death row because the two guys that he was consulting with, both of them were staring at death. He's literally on death row. And you can say all the positive things that you want, but Joseph had to be having some, a wrestling match in his brain like, well, so much for being a good guy. So much for it all works out. So much for you reap what you sow. Look, look where I'm at. I'm, at. I'm where the worst of the worst is, and I've done nothing to deserve this. I've only done what's right. Look where I'm at. Nobody will even hear my case. So on down in verse 50, 52, let me read this. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph of Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it is because God made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. I'm going to come back to that. The second son he named Ephraim, and he said, is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Do you see the first one, forget all my trouble? So how does God take bad junk and change us to where that we can not be stung by that junk anymore? And most of you know the story when he came to his brothers, when his brothers came, there was that moment of reconciliation, and they were scared, okay, this guy's going to kill us now, and he has, he has the means to do it. He has all the authority, and he says, no, 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 guys, what you meant for bad, God meant for good. God sent me ahead here because he wanted me literally. How many, how many people can actually say, God sent me ahead of you to, to solve world hunger? I mean, how cool is that, right? Yeah. God actually raised me up to solve world hunger. And so what you read here is this. Joseph didn't work through that junk when his brother showed up. He had already worked through the junk so that when his brother showed up, he didn't kill him. Because he might have killed him if he hadn't worked through it. And what was it? Joseph let God give him a different perspective on what had happened. God did not change. Listen to me. Everybody in this room has had some bad stuff at some point. And some of you have had, yes, I will acknowledge, you've had stuff that goes off the charts in pain, in suffering, and in the, in, the, in, the, in the words that we would use, horrendous, horrible. Yes, you've had that. I understand that. But hear what I'm saying. God helped Joseph to see it from another perspective rather than just the poisonous perspective. Your brothers betrayed you. Joseph got another perspective by going, because God wanted me to solve world hunger. It was the only way for, to get me here. Because I'm sure if God would have said, Joseph, go to Egypt, he would have said, no. Sometimes God already knows our answer. He says, well, let me help you. Get. But here's the other part, which takes us to the, last, to the last point. Read it out loud. What God does in us is the foundation for what God does through us. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Why did God have to do that to Joseph? Because the backbone of Egypt's economy was that slave labor. 
And God wanted Joseph to see, to see how critical they were to the, to the world, to Egypt. And he was saying, listen, you understand that Egypt only does as well as its labor force. By the way, remember I told you that it was under that Pharaoh that the trades took off? It was partly because of Joseph's intervention to say, let me tell you something, these slaves go down, you don't feed them, you're sunk. Because that means all the work comes to you guys. You need them. And here's the second thing. Joseph was an outsider. He was a Hebrew. Oh, he was dressed like an Egyptian. They gave him an Egyptian name. But inside he was a Hebrew. And there were people who knew he was a Hebrew. And they all knew where he came from. And Joseph could stand in Pharaoh's household and go, I know these slaves aren't Egyptian, but you better treat them with respect and you better treat them with dignity and you better feed them. Because I know how much work they do because I used to do that work. You need them. And the second thing Joseph could have made a strong case for with Pharaoh is this. You have enough to take care of the world. I know they're not Egyptian, but that doesn't get you off the hook from helping them. You need to help the world. You have the resources. They're not asking for handouts. They're asking for you for help. And that's no different than me when I asked for help. Help them. I firmly believe it was because of Joseph that not only was Egypt spared, the rest of the world was spared. What God does in you is because later on he wants to use that to serve somebody else. Your miracle today will be somebody else's miracle tomorrow. God sometimes lets you suffer because he knows that when you get through it, you will, you will so connect with people who go through that type of suffering and you'll say, I'm gonna be there for them the way somebody should have been there for me. There'll never be a person who will walk that dark valley as lonely and as dark as I did. I'm gonna be the voice that walks with them. I'm going to step back into that world, not to join, but to save them. God, listen to me. Your miracle is not just your miracle. Your miracle is somebody else's miracle. And because of Joseph, there's a lot of people whose lives were spared and they weren't Egyptians. But Joseph said, does that really matter? We're in a position to save them. You, everybody say it, you are somebody's miracle. Turn to somebody and tell them that. Say it, you are somebody's miracle.